This episode was recorded back on April 2nd. Sorry for the delays, but we are now on COVID time. However, I do need to mention that I reference bats in the opening and talk about Ezra chatting with a doctor in this episode as well. Well, we will actually get to that in our next episode. But for now, enjoy the show and enjoy the excellent interview with Robin Schwartz later in the episode. My daughter's playing with Hungry Hippos. Fake, fake, fakety, fake. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm Caitlin. Welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News and then talk about how bats do not belong in wet markets with my friend Caitlin. Great. How are you, Caitlin? I'm doing okay. Surviving self-isolation. How about yourself? I am also surviving self-isolation. You might hear some clickety-clacks in this episode. Do, do you want to be a guest on the podcast? You can say hi. Hi, world. Hi, world. Yes, my spouse is working from home right now, and she has to work late, so she's working beside me. That's how we're surviving self-isolation. <laughs> Sounds like a good time. How has how has your job been going, I guess? Um, a lot of Zoom meetings, a lot of sitting in on online lectures, and listening to students forget to take off their microphones. <laughs> really fun stuff. The other day, um, my super, my TA supervisor had an online lecture on what's called Collaborate, kind of like Zoom, basically. And he told everyone, like, when you enter the chat, please, like, turn off your microphones or else it will be really distorted and other people can't hear. So I guess this girl was having issues with her internet connecting in and out on her, her end. So she didn't really, like, hear him say, like, turn off your microphone and he was cutting out on her end and uh, she left her microphone on and you could hear her getting frustrated with the computer cutting it out. And she's like, what the fuck is wrong with this? <laughs> <laughs> and then, so I emailed her saying, uh, please, please turn off your microphone. We can hear you screaming profanities. Cause there was like, at one point she was like, fuck, like just so loud. <laughs> That's amazing, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's been a fun time. I think my students have just given up. Like, you can just feel the lack of effort, lack of care. I've had so many virtual office hours, no one's showing up to them. But there's a lot more marking and, like, helping organize the course on, on my part than there usually would have been. A lot of, like, administrative and, like, data entry stuff that I usually don't, don't do at all that I've had to kind of, like, shift to do to help out the... The course professor. Yeah, I've been doing a surprise number of virtual meetings as well through my work with the NDP, but then also the Labor Council and just all this stuff and doing virtual meetings. But then I've also been getting a lot of interviews in as well. So for the podcast. Yeah, which is good stuff. Remember to keep calling your MPs. You need to tell them that we want rent and mortgage subsidies. They are a must at this point, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially in terms of stopping the tenants and landlords constantly fighting with each other. And I also want to state, I'm firmly in the tenant camp of this. But, you know, I think if we can just remove both mortgages and rent, everyone will get along. <laughs> it's true. I agree with that. But I definitely think landlords are awful. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and I, I booked an interview with Sam Hirsch, and he will be on probably in the coming weeks to talk about how the Ottawa rent strike is going. So Okay, cool. I also want to say that you should contact your MPs again 
to talk about the CERB and make sure it has broader coverage. We talked about that more on last show, but it's worth reminding to continue to call them about the CERB. And you may think that picking up your phone and calling your local politician doesn't really matter, but guess what? They will receive a signal if they are flooded with an abnormally high volume of calls with people authentically speaking to a particular issue. So send them that signal, and it won't necessarily move them, but it's the least you can do, so pick up that phone and call them. Now, if any of you happen to be in an alright financial situation, please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash imperialnews. And with that being said, this is the Imperial Roundup. Oh my gosh. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. And we are going to start with March 30th. The beginning of this episode is really just a long list of grievances. Ezra keeps going on about this conspiracy theory that Trudeau is secretly not taking the COVID test. And I'm not sure why it's a secret. (laughs) And I'm not even sure what this conspiracy theory entails. But the gist of what I get from it is that Trudeau just wants to stay at home. And he just wants to stay at home because his wife had COVID, but it's been long enough and he didn't get tested himself. So why is he staying at home? And he should be getting out in the public. And this is somehow a conspiracy. Hmm. And I have no clue what that is all about. I mean, we've talked about how Trudeau maybe hasn't been the best leader in this crisis and could be doing more to provide resources, but also show that he's doing a lot of work. And I guess he has been doing those. He'll walk out and give you those meetings to the press that he's been doing every day. Yeah. Yeah. Is is that sufficient? I don't know. I mean, I guess the one thing that he's doing that I think is good that I can highlight is that there is some sense in which what he's doing does signal to the greater public that he too is socially distancing. And I actually think that might have some sort of good beneficial effect. Yeah, he's definitely been hammering that point home, like the importance of staying home. He has repetitively said, people aren't taking this serious. Please do your part, right? And I mean, I I hate this, like, we're in this together. We're united as one. As Canadians, I'm asking you to be like war veterans now by staying home. Like he, like he just constantly has these lines, and they, I, I can't put a, a word to, to it, or I can't think of the word on the top of my head to the tone it is, but it, it's so corny. It's insincere. It, it's cringe. Like that, that's the best way to describe it. It's like very impassionate too when he's saying it. I don't know. You really nailed his rhythm, though. I've been watching him every morning. So. <laughs> Uh, yes yes he's he's he does this thing like this repetitive line like in world war ii your grandparents might have been called to war your mothers might have fought for inequality and justice i'm now asking you as the canadian public to fight for us by staying home (laughs) i hate it i hate everything about it (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. That was his speech this morning. Um, <laughs> or the fact that he's comparing, like, women fighting for their rights as the same thing as staying home. Like, I'm like, come yeah. on. You know, that's, that's the same thing. <laughs> but I, it, 
it is good that he's like telling people to to stay home. He's showing it. He's leading by example by doing it. But I mean, like, my God, it's just like he's not doing enough. No, I mean, I agree on that front. But like Ezra, of course, doesn't want him to actually do the things we want him to do. But Ezra seems to like, I don't know, he like wants Trudeau to be like in a factory making masks by hand or something. (laughs) And part of me thinks that this is the kind of like strong man image that Ezra likes. Like he loves the fact and we're going to get to this in a later episode but he loves the fact that like trump will bring on like the the pillow king or whatever he is who's now like manufacturing masks and will bring him up on stage and of course the pillow king's like trump is the greatest and he's doing everything he can to save the country and trump's like oh yes yes and like to ezra that kind of like theatrics is what he wants in a leader and because trudeau seems to be just staying in his home and giving these speeches for ezra that's like him like I don't know, like going on vacation and not caring. But it's like, of course, like when 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 Trudeau was not standing at the podium, he's clearly in his house organizing things and doing the things that a prime minister should do, even though we don't think he's going far enough. Yeah. I don't know what the expectation is. He just wants Trudeau to be a fascist. <laughs> no, he just wants Trudeau to be like, fuck it, people. Get back to work. The economy's our priority. Yeah. And then as uh, as Trudeau says that, he grabs like a, a hammer and pounds some steel with it. And then the camera zooms out and he's in a factory, right? Like <laughs> yeah. steel workers. Yeah. But that's a lot of like fascist symbology, that, like what you're describing too. I think, yeah, I think I hit the, the nail on the head with that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. He then spends the rest of the segment so he criticized trudeau and now he's going to criticize dr tam who's the health minister Mm, yes and he claims that she's lying to the public specifically about masks now we covered this in the last episode and i want to say that ezra keeps talking about how uh, masks are super important and it's clearly they stop the spread of the disease and in my talk with ryan like we go over the fact that it's not clear that masks work the way people think that they do, especially not the N95 masks, but all the other sort of like cloth masks or things that people are wearing. And that the evidence is kind of mixed as to whether it does actually mitigate the spread of a virus. Really, the most important thing is social distancing. So if you are engaging in social distancing, you shouldn't need a mask. And the other thing that Ezra gets really mad about is he keeps claiming that the minister is calling people stupid because the end, she says a lot of the public does not how to know how to properly use an N95 mask, which is the medical mask that the nurses and stuff are using at this time. Yeah. And the one that's in such short stock. And the thing is like, when I talk to Ryan, again, you can listen to last episode, the process of of making sure the mask is fitted is way more complicated that I don't think Ezra actually appreciates. And I don't think most people appreciate, which is like, you have to like fit it on your face a specific way. Can't wear, have a beard or any facial hair. You then have to do some sort of like spray test to make sure that it has such a seal that no particulate is going through it. That and you still can't touch it or stuff because you don't want to create cross-contamination. And if you wear it for a particularly long time, it sort of like wears out its usefulness because you could create like pockets of moisture, which then the bacteria can grow and stuff like this, right? Or not bacteria, virus. And so in that sense, 
these things are complicated and they are difficult to use. And it's hard to teach the public how to like main or make sure that the public is maintaining good practice while using this mask such that it would have some sort of effect. Yeah. And so Ezra constantly, whenever Dr. Tam talks about the masks on his show, he's like, she just thinks we're stupid and don't know how to use a mask. And it's like, Yes, because most people probably don't know how to use this mask. It has nothing to do with you being stupid. It has everything to do with the mask being complicated. Yeah. Also that like you're not a healthcare provider and you don't need the mask. You just need to stay the fuck home. When has not being an expert ever stopped Ezra from talking about a subject? <laughs> It'd just be nice if he actually like invited experts on the show. Like I honestly don't even mind when he brings in professors because I'm like at least they're somewhat closer. You're gonna regret you said that. <laughs> <laughs> is it a doctor oh we're gonna find out uh. <laughs> we're gonna add some suspense Ezra then goes on to again promote Taiwan for specifically doing a great job and this was another thing that Ryan and I talked about so you can go listen to last week's episode Taiwan has other health policies in place it has nothing to do with the masks as to why they're they're doing better than other countries Ezra also complains about Trudeau apparently sending personal protective equipment to China earlier in February. And he claims that this is the reason why Canada does not have any supplies of masks is because we ship them all to China. But for the interview segment, Ezra has on someone named Ryan Rivera. Ryan Rivera is someone who works for Gavin McGuinness. And he is also someone that Ezra randomly hired to try to cross the Roxham Road entrance from the United States to Canada. The stunt was supposed to be, look how porous this border is, like anyone can get in. However, Ryan Rivera was stopped and did not get across the border. (laughs) And he was stopped by the American police who are like, you're not a refugee. (laughs) Now, it was reported that Ryan Rivera was arrested and it's it's clear that he wasn't actually arrested. He was just, they were like, what are you doing? Go away. But the other part, like, that's frustrating to me is like, during a pandemic, this is such a stupid and unnecessary thing to do by exposing this this idiot to try to cross this border by going out into public and not socially distancing himself and making the police have to apprehend him and move him away all when we're in the middle of this pandemic. Like, why would you do that? Because have you been listening to what they've been saying? They've been encouraging people to go out. Who cares about old people if they get sick? When Ezra was talking about putting the youth back to work, I didn't know he was going to pay them himself to try to, <laughs> to cross the border. <laughs> exactly. So we're now on to March 31st. And Ezra begins this show by complaining that gender studies professors, they're not working, but they're still getting paid. What? <laughs> and they're not even essential. Oh my gosh. Wait till he finds out what tenure is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says that and then moves on. It's completely not relevant to the rest of the show. <laughs> he just really doesn't like gender studies. Oh, I know. he has to get it in like once a week. Ezra then says that the reason why there are no masks in Canada is again because we sold them all to China. And he's also mad that currently China is sending those masks back to other countries around the world, including Canada. And he complains that these masks that the Chinese are sending are all defective. His evidence of this is he plays a clip of an anonymous video 
of a Chinese man stepping on masks and smiling while doing it. What? And, <laughs> and he claims that this is evidence that they're sending us like shoddy masks. What? Yep. Just a random unsourced video. I feel like that's where a lot of the right gets their, their ideas though. Yep. <laughs> it is going to be a continuing theme because he also shows some clip of Chinese people looking like they're tampering with thermometers. And he claims that these are the thermometers they're sending to the U.S. and they're all defective. Are they even Chinese people? I, well, I don't even know if they're Chinese people. <laughs> <laughs> is it in China? I have no clue where these videos are coming from. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, I do know where some of the videos are coming from, which is that they're not... The videos themselves are anonymous. I don't know who who's in them or where they are. But these videos, a lot of them are being put out by the Epoch Times, which we have already discussed is the newspaper that's produced by the Falun Gong cult that publishes QAnon conspiracy theories and praises Donald Trump. Mm. And the leader believes that aliens are real and other fun stuff. And his his stuff, like when you get into it, like he's against cultural degeneracy and like other stuff. Like he's a real fascist. And and the thing is, it's sad because I do think that there is some evidence that they were persecuted by the the Chinese government. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you're persecuted, but now you're spreading conspiracy theories and praising our own fascist leaders. Like not a not a great look either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Ezra's source of lots of this information. So he keeps on retweeting this stuff from a bunch of Epoch Times journalists and uh, people who are a part of the Falun Gong cult all, on Twitter all the time. And I think a lot of these videos he's getting are from those individuals that have an invested interest in combating the Chinese government that they see as being communist and therefore evil. The next part of the episode is he goes into again saying that Dr. Tam is lying about the effectiveness of the masks. It's one of those things of just repetition of him. Like, I just got to say this over and over again. Why aren't we wearing masks? Why aren't we wearing masks? Why aren't we wearing masks? And then the part that's frustrating me is that's going to create a run on masks from a lot of the people listening to his show when we've already reported that there are shortages at some hospitals for these masks. And we don't want a run on this product that our healthcare workers need. But he moves on from that and he starts praising Donald Trump for using industry to start manufacturing medical supplies. Okay, but that's like every country. That's not just Donald Trump. It's funny because he goes, at the end of him praising Donald Trump, he's like, was it slowly, not slowly? I don't know. And the thing is, it like was super slow. Yeah. Like Donald Trump did not move on this as adequately as Ezra's trying to pump him up to be. They've got the most cases in the world now. And, and that has to do with a lot of them. For example, I think Florida only started initiating social distancing, or not social distancing, but like uh, putting out a do not leave your home order uh, yesterday, which was April 1st in, in our timeline. Yeah. Which is insane if you're going to try to mitigate the spread of this thing. But when it comes to like motivating industry, like for example, Trump was just like, oh, I've told GM to build ventilators. But then GM is like, how many do we build? Where do you want them to go? Like, like you can't just say build them and then they they need direction. Yeah. And so they lagged on a lot of those indicators. But of course, Ezra doesn't bring up any of these issues. And then Ezra goes from the American context to start talking about Canada. Well, first, actually, he praises a bunch of Canadian companies that have stepped up and are building things like masks and ventilators. 
But he avoids any discussion about these companies actually working with the Trudeau government to facilitate this, which, of course, they would have had to. But Ezra doesn't want to paint the picture of Trudeau actually doing anything. And the thing is, again, (laughs) we can have arguments about whether Trudeau is doing enough, but it's like, it's amazing to me that he can't give Trudeau even a tiny win by saying Trudeau is working with industry to build needed medical supplies in this country. Yeah. It's like, that would be too much. But he is. So I'm just so confused by that. Nope, he actually isn't. He isn't? According to Ezra. (laughs) (laughs) Trudeau's on vacation in his home. That's all he's doing. And Ezra complains, he goes, even even though the industry is doing some stuff, they're not making masks for everyone. Therefore, we failed. Mm. I mean, that's what's been debated, though, with like the health minister, whenever they're coming on. When they've been coming on to answer questions, like people, reporters have constantly berated them with, are we producing enough masks for for the public? And then her having to constantly be like, there's not enough evidence to show that it's beneficial. I can see where the public's coming from in the sense that it feels intuitively plausible that if medical workers need to use these N95 medical masks, then why don't we all need to use this mask? Yeah. I agree. But then the other end of that is like, but the evidence shows like if you're doing social distancing, it really doesn't matter. And if you're not trained, you're going to fiddle with your mask and spread the virus. Yeah, you're not doing anything really. Yeah. And you worry about the, the false sense of security that you could have by wearing a mask and therefore thinking you're invincible and then no longer socially distancing yourself. Yep. That's why not everyone needs a mask. Make sure that the medical people get it is my position. So then we get to the interview segment and Ezra has on Joel Pollock. And there's nothing to really say about this. Again, Joel Pollock, Breitbart editor, comes on usually to talk about American politics. And they spend the whole interview saying that Andrew Cuomo, who's the governor of New York, is somehow going to replace Joe Biden before the presidential election. <laughs> This is a conspiracy theory that a lot of people have been like throwing around online, which is that because Andrew Cuomo is seemingly doing a great job in in looking all strong and leadership like during the COVID crisis in New York, that the Democratic voters are going to realize that we need this still old, but more energized looking leader than Joe Biden. Therefore, they're somehow going to choose Andrew Cuomo. But that's not really possible. (laughs) Beyond weird scenarios that they try to conjure up. So I guess they speculated that somehow the Democratic officials are going to do some sort of switch at the convention or some like... Sounds Democratic at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you... Because here's the thing is they never say while going through this like wild speculation, which is that if they did something like that, it's guaranteed to piss off a large portion of whoever voted for Joe Biden. Yeah, exactly. Ezra ends by complaining that Trudeau is working from home like a millennial, even if he is not sick. Trudeau has not had any symptoms, yet he's been in self-isolation for almost three weeks. He has not taken the test that would obviously prove negative. Like I say, he has no symptoms. He's just choosing to stay at home. And once a day he comes out and gives a a little scripted press conference outside his house. Then he goes back in his house till the next day. And Joel, my point is, he doesn't have the virus. He just is quarantining himself like 
like he's a millennial laid off from, you know, a retail store. What do you think of that? Now he's throwing all millennials under the bus that we all just work from home. Working from home millennials. Is Ezra not working from home? He has a studio. Yep. I haven't watched any of the videos in a bit, so I don't know if he's moved from the studio to home. My guess is he's still traveling into Toronto because he's an essential service. Journalists are essential services. Really? Yep. According to the Ford government, journalism is an essential service. So he probably is all proud and showing up to his work like, do-do-do-do-do, I'm essential, and then goes into his office to affect his co-workers with COVID. So. Yeah, yeah, and tell them to go out in public and berate people at airports. This wasn't in any of the episodes, but there was a segment online where Ezra sent David Menzies to an LCBO. What is this? Are you guys kidding me? To talk about how, why are LCBOs still open? I guess it's because we have alcoholics, but man, why are we having it open? They are keeping these stores open during a global pandemic to cater to those customers who should be weaned off alcohol because, well, it's destroying their lives. Doesn't sound very socially responsible to me. How about you? For Rebel News, I'm David the Menzoid Menzies. David Menzies had that moment of like wokeness where he realized there's a reason to have the LCBO open. Yeah, yeah. Which is to facilitate people with addiction problems. And yet he still was uneasy about this for some reason. <laughs> I have with me Robin Schwartz, who is the co-founder of Pro-Choice London, the Special Projects Coordinator at Shore Centre, and the Vice President of Abortions Rights Coalition of Canada, and she is going to be here to chat with us about the state of reproductive health during this current pandemic. But I also want to flag at the front that she is here in her capacity as an individual, not as a representative of these organizations, but to highlight that she is someone with expertise on this subject. So welcome, Robin. Thank you so much, Jody. I'm excited. Uh, I feel like since you shouted me out on the show, uh, it was only a matter of time before uh, you managed to convince me to come on. So here we are. Well, I knew from the start that we would need you to come on or because reproductive health is something that the far right is heavily invested in. And I think that's something we'll, we'll touch on in the end, uh, the end of this conversation rather than at the beginning, because we happen to be currently within a pandemic. <laughs> and uh, that seems to be taken over a lot of things. But before we get into that, I, just because you work in the reproductive rights field and reproductive health, what is it that you do if, if you want to give a bit of an explainer. Yeah, sure. So my paid day job is with sexual health options and resources and education, which is Shore Center in Kitchener. Um, we are the only pro-choice nonprofit west of Toronto. So that means that we serve all of southwestern Ontario, but our main office is in downtown Kitchener and we have satellites in both Cambridge and Guelph. And so Shore kind of does two things. Uh, so I'll explain what we do briefly first and then kind of where I fit. So we have our education team. Uh, and so they do a lot of really awesome community sexual health education, whether that's going into schools to support teachers delivering the sex ed curriculum to students to make sure that they get that information, uh, community workshops, 
Uh, a lot of groups will invite us in if they want, say, a workshop on menstruation or a workshop on, I don't know, whatever whatever their questions are about, about sexual health. We are the ones who will try and do our best to answer them. And then on the other side of things is our pregnancy options program, uh, of which I have been a member for the last year. And so pregnancy options, we um, essentially support all reproductive health options. So uh, we do offer medication abortion in our office, but we also do things like IUD insertions, birth control consultations. Uh, I just spent the last year as a program developer creating Canada's first pro-choice uh, pregnancy support program. So ongoing support if you choose to continue your pregnancy, our program and our outreach worker will do that for you. And so really, we're, we're an all-options uh, pro-choice nonprofit. Uh, there's three of us in Ontario. It's us, Planned Parenthood Toronto, and Planned Parenthood Ottawa. And so my role is very flexible. Um, I am kind of on the pregnancy side of things, the only member of our team who isn't client-facing. And what I mean by that is I do get to help clients, but a lot of my role is talking to decision makers um, and other nonprofit professionals. So uh, and writing policies and creating resources and programs uh, that are inclusive um, and help uh, really just give people access to the information and support that they're looking for around reproductive health. We had chatted beforehand about, and, and we actually plugged the Shore Center Friends of Shore on our last podcast. So I was wondering if you could just fill us in as well about what uh, Shore is experiencing during the pandemic and maybe some resources that people can use. Yeah, so Shore, one of the things I love about this organization and the reason that uh, even as I was a PhD candidate in London, I really wanted to work for Shore specifically out of anywhere that I could have worked is that one of our values is accessibility. And so our website, we do not believe in keeping things to ourselves. We believe in open access. We believe in information sharing. And so shorecenter.ca has so many great resources, including actually a lot of stuff for parents. Uh, if you're concerned about your kid missing out on some of the information that maybe you don't feel comfortable talking to them about directly, we have resources to help you do that. There is information about all sorts of sexual and reproductive health uh, options and uh, on our website as well if people we're looking to access uh, an abortion for any reason. We do have our clinic page there. And then beyond that, I am also the project lead on um, choiceconnect.ca, which is a partnership that Shore created as a way of giving people an online abortion directory, which did not exist in Canada before. And so if you were looking for where to get an abortion during this time, choiceconnect.ca is still your best place to start. It has you put in uh, how far along you are in your pregnancy and where you're located. We do not take any identifying information for people who might be concerned uh, that looking that up at home is not safe. Um, all we're looking for is where are you and it will tell you the closest abortion provider to you in Canada. And so in, as far as our services being impacted, um, we're still going, but we've had to adapt. Our clinical stuff is our top priority because uh, abortions cannot wait, unlike, say, even a pregnancy, um, unless you are in the third trimester, 
people in terms of urgency of care, getting an abortion is often a week or two week time frame potentially, or you might have to travel or not get that uh, healthcare that you need. And so uh, we are definitely triaging some of our services, but we all feel that everything that we do at Shore is essential healthcare, whether that's birth control, And so we are doing what we can to support the community through this time where I think a lot of people are seeing their access to healthcare if it's not COVID-19 directly related uh, go away. And so we are doing what we can to help with that. I've been seeing a lot of jokes about, you know, a lot of people are going to be at home, possibly having some fun times. As they should. Good for them. (laughs) And then possibly at the end of this, we're going to get a lot of COVID-19 babies. So I realize like a lot of that's done in good humor, but I'm curious if that's something you guys have given any thought to and that maybe there's going to be like maybe an influx of more people like later on once this thing has passed. Yeah. So I will say just for people who are listening, for us, we have all so we have always experienced an influx right after Christmas because the two weeks of the holidays whether it's and now like because we do pregnancy support no matter what that looks like and it's ongoing sometimes that means we have a huge influx of people who are looking for help continuing their pregnancy figuring out how to go to a gynecologist how to go um, to see a midwife what options are available for me what does my birth look like i don't have a place to live now i need help all of those kinds of outcomes and so we really felt the crunch uh, right after New Year's. And I anticipate it will be, that will feel nice <laughs> compared to what is going to come. But more than that, in terms of access to abortion care, it really, we've noticed across Canada, and I will say I'm also a volunteer on the national access line for abortion with um, Action Canada. And so I have both the local Southwestern Ontario view, but also a national view just for my role there. We were already noticing a a spike in calls. And I really believe that that's because young people are realizing that they can make this choice and they can make the choice later in pregnancy because no one deserves to have be forced to carry a pregnancy to term that they don't want. And so we were already experiencing a really big influx in calls. And I will say, so medication abortion came to Canada two years ago in 2017. So that's Smith-Gyneso. And for people who are listening, uh, there's been some really weird information floating around the internet because I think Piers Morgan, someone in the UK made this comment about, so people have a misconception that this is the morning after pill. And I want anyone listening to understand that it's not and that it is ending a pregnancy. It is the same medication that you would get if you had an early miscarriage and there was retained tissue. So if you had a miscarriage at 11 weeks, it is the the same medication. Mifigimiso is two pills. It's misoprostol, which is the part that stops the pregnancy, and the misopristone, which is the part that expels uh, whatever is in the uterus. And that misopristone is a medication that any family doctor should be very familiar with because if you had a patient presenting early miscarriage signs, they would get that pill specifically and have forever. And so it's funny that Canada was 30 years behind the rest of the world getting this 
sole form of medication abortion, the two pills together. And what has happened is that over the last two years, people like me have done a really good job letting people know this exists, advocating for it. We had to do a lot of work to get some restrictions taken off that were put in place to initially that weren't put in place on any other drug, things like mandatory ultrasounds. But what's happened is the news did a really great job last year talking about this drug and telling people, hey, you can end a pregnancy at home with a pill. And people were like, wow, amazing. But what didn't happen is the medical community didn't educate general practitioners on their role in it. And so what we have had as a nonprofit at Shore is really an influx of calls and referrals from doctors who can prescribe this pill themselves. Anyone who can write a prescription in Canada, you have prescribing abilities, you can prescribe this drug. That was not the case and when it was initially rolled out by Health Canada. There was courses and things that people had to take. And so I think there's still some misinformation among healthcare providers. But essentially what those of us on the advocacy side have felt for some time is that we did the advocacy work, we got this drug, and now family doctors are essentially refusing to do their role of becoming abortion providers for whatever reason, whether they don't have time because the medical system is so crunched that they're like, well, I don't do abortion and I'm going to refer, or whether it's some kind of internalized stigma or bias. Medication abortion can only happen up to nine weeks into pregnancy very early. That is at that point, most of those periods we're dealing with an embryo. It's only those last couple of weeks that the medical community would call it a fetus officially. And so it's very much meant to end an early pregnancy. And so what we get at Shore is a lot of family doctors and walking clinics who send us their patients. And we cannot physically provide this drug for everyone in southwestern Ontario who wants to end a pregnancy, although we are trying. And the same is true of my colleagues at Action Canada and the volunteer role I have. It is not possible for one one paid person and a team of volunteers to tell everyone in Canada who wants to end a pregnancy where to get this drug. I should be able to call my family doctor and not be afraid that they're going to say no to me. And so that was already happening. But it's very important, I think, for people to understand that this was the what I would call access crisis we were already in, especially like, so we've had people, like all of Southwestern Ontario comes to see us, people from Collingwood, people from areas in Bruce County, like it is all over to our small clinic that is not led by doctors, it's run by a social worker, because general practitioners are not doing their job. And some of them, it's by choice. Some of them, it's lack. It's how the healthcare system has been set up and lack of family doctors. What I anticipate coming out of COVID-19 is that the hellfire that we were already living through is going to continue to grow because, and that was also exacerbated by the fact that this drug that I'm talking about was on back order for several weeks and many of the clinics didn't have it. So I know if, for example, in London, Ontario, they were out for at least four weeks. And what that actually means is that people are not getting access to early care and therefore are then having to go for the in-clinic procedure, which is performed uh, in London. The only place you can get it is Victoria Hospital. 
It's not performed at every hospital. Access to that has always been really bad across Canada. And this drug was supposed to help ease that burden. But if family doctors aren't helping and we can't get the drug, we're going to end up with people stuck pregnant. And our biggest concern as a movement is really having to tell people, I'm sorry, you're having a child you don't want. That would literally break my heart. And I know it's going to have, I'm going to be in situations like that where, for example, we do rely on a clinic in the United States who, if you are past 23 weeks and six days in Canada, you cannot get an elected abortion procedure here. Uh, That is a decision that was made by the the, um, Society of Gynecology in the early 90s. Um, And it's it's honestly not based on any evidence. It's just that's what they decided. That was the procedure. And so we still send people to Boulder, Colorado from Canada. It's not often, but people who find themselves with, say, a fetal abnormality that they're looking down. If you are past 23 weeks and six days, you are going to the U.S. And we are going to have to do that right now. That is not that is not going to change because of COVID-19, but it's going to be really hard and we're really worried and really scared and just preparing for every call that comes through where we have to explain to someone this is going to be even harder than it already was especially during the border closures that are happening currently. Yeah, and so my understanding right now from talking to friends in the sector is that we will be able to get people there. And Colorado has been very uh, kind and accommodating. The doctor who runs that clinic, man, there's a documentary about him called After Tiller. He is my like hero. I was supposed to be hugging him last week because I was supposed to go to a conference that he was going to be at. He's like 80 and has just been doing abortions forever because it's the right thing to do. Coolest guy, like just like the kindest person. And his mentor was the last abortion provider who was shot point blank uh, at a church in 2009, uh, Dr. George Tiller. And so the fact that Dr. Hearn has carried on doing this work, like I would ask anyone listening to this, how many of you could have your mentor shot for doing your job and carry on? So yeah, he's he's a fucking national hero and uh, deserves everything. Uh, so he's still going to do it for Canada, um, and they've been very kind and accommodating. But it is something we're afraid of, um, and just even getting flights down there, right? Like how, like with the number of flights that have been canceled, how are we going to get someone and get them? They have to pay for it, right? How are we going to pay for that flight, and how are we going to be able to support them? Um, yeah, it's really, and that's nothing new. Like these are not new things. It just becomes even harder. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised about what you're saying about the state of reproductive health and abortions in Canada. I think we're under the perception that Canada is a very safe for abortion or pro-choice country. But I mean, a lot of what you're covering here too, uh, sort of like feeds into my next question, which is this is a Ezra Levant podcast where I cover rebel media and it's interesting because abortion doesn't often come up on the show. And I have speculated that that's because Ezra is trying to appeal to a younger demographic. And therefore, he doesn't really push the kind of like uh, pro-Christianity kind of stuff. However, a lot of his guests on the show, like Andrew Lawton, who's a radio host from London, he's very pro, uh, uh, pro-life, quote unquote. And even some of the conservative candidates who are are arguably the fringe conservative candidates 
are the ones who seem to be the most staunchly pro-life out of all the the conservative party leadership candidates i should specify like leslin lewis who got endorsed by charles McVady. so i'm just curious since you're you work in the thick of it and it's something that doesn't necessarily come up on our show yet i think it's very highly relevant to understanding the far right in canada is how would you frame or or how would you sort of like paint the picture of what the far right is doing in Canada in terms of abortion rights? Yeah, so I always like to start, I, I call being anti-abortion the gateway drug to being uh, far right. I would love some money and, and time to actually research this as a, as a graduate student one day. I think that would be really cool because really how I got started doing this work was countering a very bad uh, anti-abortion group at Western uh, that is directly affiliated with, and I have now found through my own kind of guerrilla activist work, um, directly connected with the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform in Canada, which is, just to give listeners kind of a, a primer on anti-choice groups, so I would say that there are three, uh, four really big ones that are the main kind of drivers of anti-abortion work in Canada. There's Campaign Life Coalition, which anyone who follows far-right stuff should be familiar with. They're the big tent one. They're the ones who plan the March for Life every year on Parliament Hill, where they bus every small Catholic school child from Ontario up to get their huge numbers and show how everyone in Canada is just anti-choice. Because of course, that's not coercive in any way. They're the other group that has endorsed Leslie Lewis, who is one of the conservative leadership campaigns. So. Yeah, so so Campaign Life Coalition is one, and, and that's, they're kind of the longest standing one, in my understanding, um, of reading kind of the history and understanding that. And I will say, just for your listeners uh, to know, I was doing a PhD in women's history on the 60s and 70s in Canada before leaving for my current job. So I do know... I know a lot of the historical context just generally of that time period because that was my dissertation work. So Campaign Life Coalition is a group that always has had a list of pro-life politicians and they have a rating scale that they go through, but it's not just about abortion for them. It's a lot of quote unquote pro-family stuff, which as we know is a gaslight for homophobia and patriarchy, keeping women in the home, like they really believe that the basis of society is those fixed gender roles and um, stopping things like abortion uh, and sex ed. Like they were huge on the on the anti-sex ed curriculum stuff uh, and working with Kenya Granick Allen in Ontario. So they're kind of the big tent, but then underneath them, and these are the more I guess newer groups is uh, we need a law is one and anyone who's in London will be familiar with them because Pro-Choice London successfully got rid of one of their stupid ads off the side of our buses several years ago because uh, it was wrong and Canada does have abortion laws. Our laws are the same as any medical procedure where it is governed just like your cancer treatment or your brain surgery. We don't need 18 laws every time that something changes. Doctors know what they're doing and they have policies and procedures. So we need a law is the legal arm and the legal arm is trying to write legislation and get politicians to pass those laws or put forward those motions. We have right now, which is was the newest one and it was founded in, I believe, 2016 after they were so upset that Justin Trudeau was prime minister. How how could this possibly happen? Such a he's so he's so pro-choice. 
I've never heard of a more pro-choice individual, despite what I just told you about access in Canada and all the power he had for four years. Clearly the most pro-choice human of all time. Someone named Alyssa Golob, who was the youth organizer for Campaign Life Coalition, teamed up with a guy named Scott Hayward, who was an accountant in Manitoba, but also, to my understanding, a Conservative Party insider and campaigner, like, of all, not, he didn't work for the party, but he did during campaign time, like, so this dude is not just, like, an accountant who was like, hmm, maybe I should do this. He, like, is a part of the Conservative Party there. They formed right now, which is their new political advocacy group and that's the group that we've kind of been hearing more about lightly because they're the ones who specifically are targeting electing anti-abortion politicians. So they saw what worked in the U.S. and they say, why have we, Alyssa has said before, because she used to plan the March for Life, that she didn't understand why we weren't having the same victories that the Americans did and she wanted to bring that stuff here. So very specifically, teaching people how to canvas. Yeah, so they're very much, I, I um, see them as like politics 101 for Catholics and how to engage in politics in a go to writing association meetings, go to the AGM, go, uh, and they were the ones trying to pass the resolution at the conservative convention. So very much working within the party to make these changes happen. And then finally, and this is the group that I consider the most dangerous, is the CCVR or the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. They were founded in the mid-2000s. I don't want to get my dates wrong, but I want to say 2006-ish. And so the person who helped found that organization, uh, there was, I believe, two pastors, but the main communications coordinator's name is Jonathan Mammarin, and he actually lives about an hour outside of London. And the CCBR is specifically building on a movement that was coming out of the U.S. in the 90s called the Operation Rescue. Have you ever heard of them? It sounds very familiar. So Operation Rescue in terms of the anti... Well, I like to think of the anti-abortion movement as a radical in all ways, but kind of public and then private. The private piece was the setting up of crisis pregnancy centers around the time that Roe v. Wade passed at the end of the 60s, early 70s. And crisis pregnancy centers are those organizations. uh, They're in communities all across Canada, but particularly uh, people have heard about them from the U.S. They are faith-based pregnancy support centers where you go in for counseling and you find, because you have an unplanned pregnancy, pregnant and scared need help. And their goal is to keep you from getting an abortion. So they don't say abortion is murder on the outside, but they believe it with their policy and how they treat people. So that's the internal kind of underground part of the anti-choice movement. And I often feel more insidious in some ways because uh, people don't know it's, it's very coercive. But outwardly, from 1973, when Roe v. Wade passes to present, we've had an increased radicalization of the anti-choice movement. And that really peaked in the 90s with Operation Rescue, which was this group in the United States that started to violently attack abortion providers. So they were the ones who bombed clinics. They were the ones who pushed providers, killed providers. They believed they were basically, uh, it's it's a far right Christian group, right? And so they believe that they are allowed to kill abortion providers because abortion providers 
are, quote, murderers, which is not true. We all know that. But that is their justification in terms of coming from the Bible and all of these things. Like they've twisted it to a space where they feel that is a greater. And so that group was seen as very groundbreaking in the U.S. because they did have some a lot of success closing clinics. And they a lot of the states that they're very active in, there's either one clinic left or no close to no clinic. Like we're seeing the peak of what they did right now. Jonathan Van Maren and the CCBR in Canada basically were connected with these groups and tried to bring that same abortion victim for what they would say, that's the term they use, abortion victim photography. I don't like that term. But essentially, the gross signs that you see on the corner of Western and Sarnia Road, those are CCBR signs. You're welcome. And it's the idea that we cannot possibly talk about this without showing you what they believe are accurate photos, but what we in the medical community know are doctored and misleading and not a representation of what abortion is like. Uh, and in fact, often can be photos of uh, really triggering for people who've had miscarriages and, and all of those things. And so all that to say, kind of, a, so that's kind of the explainer of who's who, who's the who's who of abortion. All of those groups are connected to people that you mentioned. It's so whether it's the rebel, whether it's Andrew Lawton, Jonathan Van Maren is exactly like Andrew Lawton. He has his own website uh, and is a talk show. He's got a podcast too. He writes stuff. He's a, a paid speaker. They write books. Really, if you were a part of that sort of far right community of consultants, and I don't want to call them experts because they know nothing, but that community. It's like a weird, it's a weird fake expertise. Like they all talk with such confidence, like you would expect them to be experts, but they really, when you get down to it, it's just they're talking out of their ass. Well, and I will say um, the reason I know so much about Jonathan Van Maren is because they found out he did a history undergraduate. And so as someone who is a, also a historian or has done a lot of history work, I and he often draws on history to make his arguments, which is the most frustrating and also offensive thing to me, because he'll say things like like they like to think of themselves as abolitionists. They quote Martin Luther King Jr. all the time as they're like their person who's like we're just like these people fighting for what's right and i'm like did you take any history he's using stuff from my discipline and and things that i would have learned and then taught as a way of misleading and confusing people and it sounds true because he has a little more education on those topics than people that he's talking to and oftentimes they're touring to church groups, they're touring to religious schools across Canada, like being invited to speak on these issues. And those are not groups that have had good history education. And I know that because I taught first and second year university forever. Uh, we really have devalued history in our society. And so it is easy for him to say this is what happened. Because it sounds true. I think it's it's a, an across the board phenomenon. Not to take any anything away from the fact that yes, I wish people had like a more in depth reading of history. But I mean, it really is like a confidence game, right? Like these, it's a con game. Like they they get to present this like 
they use the trappings of the field, right? Even Ezra, when it comes to sort of like trans issues, will throw in some scientific sounding terms. But at the bottom of it, he's just speaking confidently. And that's sort of like enough to appeal to these uh, already primed bigots who are ready to jump onto what he's saying. Well, and I think the big, like when we were going back to Campaign Life Coalition, like a lot of these people um, who I see like even I look at the students at Western who like him and I feel so sad for them because I'm like, oh my God, you could be doing so much better things with your lives. Like I know it's essentially like part of why I think being anti-abortion has despite, like I often talk about LGBTQ rights with reproductive rights together because if you look at the two movements, reproductive rights and like abortion being normal should have happened before we got a lot of the gains for the LGBTQ community in theory, if we're looking at history as a, as a um, linear progression. Yeah. Linear projection, which we know is not true. Like I don't like that idea, but just in terms of like other civil rights struggles, the struggle for reproductive rights beginning in the sixties, we got Roe v. Wade in 1973. We get in ca- the Canadian context, like the Morgenthaler decision is in 1988. So you would think, that by 2020, everyone would be like, abortion is fine. We know it is healthcare. But that's not the case, given what we're seeing on Western campus and, and places across Canada in terms of how there's kind of this resurgence of young people joining those groups. And I feel that it's because it, and it's weird. I don't know, like, I hesitate to say this openly because I'm still working through some of this stuff. But it's the puppy kind of syndrome of, well, it's a baby. Yeah. And that's so problematic because I know in my own work, like I do full pregnant, like full spectrum of reproductive rights support. And I really believe in reproductive justice, which uh, for people listening who don't know, is a human rights framework that comes out of the U.S. And it's three things. Uh, It's essentially black women in the south of the U.S. led by Loretta Ross were sick and tired of white people fighting through the pro-choice and pro-life binary. And they were like, this doesn't help our experience. And so they created a human rights framework that they felt was better. And I really believe that this is the future and the way forward in terms of uh, support and care and and building the world I want to see for everything. It's three rights. It's the right to not get pregnant. So that includes things like STI testing, birth control, free birth control, access to the birth control you want and access to abortion, the right to have children. So if you wanna have kids, you should be able to do it and it shouldn't cost you thousands of dollars to get the care that you need if you have to go through IVF. If you want to have a home birth, you should be able to do it and you should be able to do that safely. People having choice to have kids the way they want. And then the third one is raising those children in safe and healthy communities, which highlights a lot of other things. So. Um, we could talk about access to clean water in Flint. We could talk about childcare. We could like it, it really encompasses a lot, and and it allows us as uh, people on the left to frame abortion as not just pro-choice, pro-life. It's actually everything, and it and it's freedom, um, and it's all connected. And so, um, yeah, Loretta Ross came up with that term, and I really feel that the time and energy that anti-choicers put into this stuff is because they're being misled and it's because 
they actually don't understand what abortion is because if they did, they would not be doing those things. And really, they're coming at it from a different perspective than I would. I know from when I used to do stuff at Western in terms of like resource tables in to make sure that students knew where to go for support, I would get a lot of uh, young people, usually men, coming up to me to ask me why I wasn't debating the anti-choice club. And I was I'm very kind, uh, especially as a graduate student, because uh, I would never want to do something that would make an undergraduate feel uncomfortable or like there's a power dynamic there, right? But the truth is that you're asking me to have a philosophical discussion about in and as a as a woman with a uterus who can get pregnant about my rights. Let's just like have philosophy. Whereas I'm here to actually say, what care do you need? Do you need to not get pregnant? Here's an IUD for you. Do you need good access to maternal care? Which, like, let's talk about how hard it is to get access to early prenatal care in Canada right now. Oh, my God. It's not talking about the anxieties that people have around pregnancy and unequal support versus planned versus unplanned, like all of these things. But they think they're doing something good because they're being told it's something good. They think that they are making a difference. And the anti-choice movement has co-opted human rights rhetoric as well. They've said, well, this is a human rights abuse. And that is so far from the truth. But the lack of literacy around these issues makes it easy to hear that and think it's true. I mean, first, I just want to say that I am a very strong uh, proponent of never debating people. which is which is funny given the pro like the show that I do but there's a, there's a difference in like analyzing the work as is than being at a like one-on-one sort of debate in front of an audience where you know be, because we just have gone over that they don't care about facts and evidence so what they're going to do is what we've discussed on the show already which is the gish gallop which is just shoot out a bunch of facts one point of theirs that is completely wrong could take you two hours to help uh dissect and sort of expose why it's wrong which is why we do this show but like in a debate format it's just not worth it so 100 percent against any debates <laughs> but, but they always want it like it's so ridiculous i don't understand because it's pr to them It is, but it's funny because I sometimes get into arguments with older and pro-choice activists who want to focus on countering their messaging specifically. And I, I would say that at this point, I am one of the leading experts on the anti-abortion movement in Canada because I've had to become one because of Western, like literally like I was watching what was happening on campus and I was like, why are all these fetus signs everywhere? Where is this coming from? This doesn't seem like my experience at my undergraduate. And then I talked to my grad student friends and they were all like, yeah, this didn't happen at where we did our undergrads either. And I was like, what's wrong here? There are groups that I would say older activists who still think that countering that operation rescue kind of movement is where we should be putting our energy. And I, because of my belief in reproductive justice, fundamentally have disagreed with that. But I know it's a dance and a balance because like part of why I got involved in this is because I saw right now as it was starting and I saw 
them Alexei Musterhoff, which he was their first success. They they defeated Rick Dystra, which if people don't know, Rick Dystra was it was Sam Musterhoff versus Rick Dystra for the nominee in that riding. Rick Dystra was the president of the Ontario PC party before that. So that would be like I don't know. I can't think of a, a really. Maybe you can think of a good comparison off the top of your head. But a kind of like, AOC moment, but on the yeah, reverse side. Like an, it was exactly like an AOC moment, or like if someone had come up and defeated Justin Trudeau, right? Like that's how insider this person was, and they organized the far right and his religious community to get him the nomination because that writing was going to go PC regardless. And so, yeah, it's exactly like an AOC moment. That's a great comparison. But basically, I saw that and was like, this is not good. This is very bad. But I've realized now, three years later, that as much as I like to know what they're up to, I like to know their arguments, I like to know kind of where they're going. That's not what I think in terms of my activism I should be doing. My activism is everyone else. It's the middle people. It's the people who... I really believe that 99% of Canadians are 100% pro-choice, no question. But the problem is that most of them don't understand that they are. And they don't get, because they people love to say things like, I support abortion, but. Yeah. And that but always follows with something. But then if I were to say to them, but don't you think blah, 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 they would be like, of course, in that scenario, et cetera. And so it's a lack of communication from our side on what abortion really is, talking to that kind of, I guess, to borrow a term from the U.S., silent majority of like people who, because most people don't care at all. They, in the same way that like, I'm not sitting here being like, so how is your uncle's cancer treatment going? Maybe we should think about, is he doing the right thing? Did he make the right choice picking chemo over radiation? I'm not sure. Like no one's having those conversations, right? Like that's not a, I would be like, I'm so sorry that your uncle is sick, Jody. I hope your uncle isn't actually sick. Everyone just as an FYI, Jody's uncle is not sick. I'm using an exa- a random example. But like, we're not sitting around being like, hmm, what cancer treatment should my friend's cousin get? We're like, wow, someone has cancer. That's really hard. An unplanned pregnancy is not cancer. I want to be very clear on that. But it is a stressful healthcare decision. It is a de- it is a decision that you have to make about your healthcare, and that comes with a lot of emotions and hormones. Being pregnant is a wild ride. I have learned so much about pregnancy in the last year, developing empowering pregnancy, and wow, do we not know a lot? And wow, do we do a bad, bad job supporting pregnant people? Like abortion is much more urgent, but sexual and reproductive health across Canada is abysmal. And if we actually supported people through their pregnancies in the way they deserve, whoa, would our society look different and giving them access to things like food and shelter and money to support their families, you know, just, just basics, family doctors, the family doctor crisis, the way our healthcare system was set up was that you go to your family doctor for your first 20 weeks of prenatal care. And then your second half of your pregnancy, if needed, is downloaded or is is you're sent to an obstetrician slash gynecologist. And so people don't have family doctors. So what does that mean? They're not getting healthcare until halfway through their pregnancy. That is dangerous. Pregnant prenatal care Early prenatal care is so important. And this is COVID-19 is just going to exacerbate this, right? Because people aren't going to be going to their appointments that they need. But all that to say, 
I think that most Canadians are pro-choice. I think that we are pro-science and I think that people, it's, it's really a small, small, small percentage of people who are misleading a lot of other maybe well-meaning, particularly Catholic members of our communities who think that they need to do that in order to have meaning and value in their lives and to protect and help uh, other members of their community. And those small number of truly anti-abortion people are causing that to happen. And it just sucks. How can people support the work that you do as well as the Shore Center? Yeah, so uh, right now, so I will say um, we do a lot of access work, whether it's driving people to their appointments. Sometimes that means paying for hotels if someone is from London and they need to get to Toronto and it's a three-day procedure and they don't have money, that's an important thing. And so um, shorecenter.ca on the top, we have a donate button. We would love, love, love to have your support. I know you plugged Friends of Shore on the last show, so that's awesome. Um, the other group that I would say to support right now um, is Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. They are our national affiliate, so they are essentially Planned Parenthood Canada. Uh, they are affiliated with Planned Parenthood International. And they're, when I've mentioned this access line, they're the ones who run it, and they have the national fund that supports things like hotels, food, lights and so donating to them directly um like shore does access some of that money so for ontario southwestern ontario specifically it's shore center but federally if you want to support it across canada it's actually canada and i do just want to add for people who might be listening um i've been reading a lot of stuff about anxiety and pregnancy and and we are seeing a spike in those calls as well where people are pregnant they're concerned about how covid19 will impact their pregnancy, whether it will be healthy, whether it will not, and also just fears around having to give birth at a hospital during this time. And I want to say that for the people that we often support at Shore who come from vulnerable communities, those are not new concerns. Um, New Canadians who uh, are coming here are often terrified of giving birth before they have OHIP because uh, they will be get, get be given bills of ten thousand uh, dollars. So this is not, yeah, it's not new. Um, one of the things that I read most recently that really concerned me is the province of Nova Scotia has suspended all home births uh, because of COVID nineteen, and that to me is devaluing midwifery expertise because uh, home births are safe uh, when done by a registered midwife. They like midwives are doctors. I'd like to be very clear. They they go to four years of a bachelor program and then four years of midwifery school. So it's not like they're just like poking around. Like these are healthcare providers. And so I personally, I'm reading a lot of particularly uh, quite privileged women who have planned pregnancies expressing anxiety. And I hope that all of us as a community and society will change how we treat pregnancy and reprioritize reproductive health through this and once this is done because public health cuts um, to STI testing, the lack of expansion, midwives, midwifery services in Ontario have not been expanded since the Ontario NDP were in power in the early 90s. And so we have not seen reproductive health as something that is deserving of investment and it is always the first thing to be cut. Our hospital in Kitchener, when Ford announced his healthcare cuts, the first cuts were disproportionately to labor and delivery, and they got rid of the nurse practitioner who sees uninsured patients. So if you are uninsured in Kitchener now, you have nowhere to go because of a cut. 
board made. And so those things happened a year ago. And now we are facing this crisis where people might have to give birth alone and be terrified. And I cannot imagine, especially if your child was born premature uh, this month or next, my heart goes out to you because having to go through that stuff with the NICU with what's going on, oh my God. And I am, if you need support, um, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at Shore because um, yeah, it's it's going to be a really hard time for all of us, but know that things like food access, homelessness, like if you are pregnant, these things impact you even more. And so I've seen a lot of stuff on the internet about how scary this time is to be pregnant. And it is. But for some people, it is always scary to be pregnant. And for some people who want to parent and want to continue their pregnancy, they are already living in a shelter. And that was already happening 12 months ago. And so yeah, just continued support and investment in sexual and reproductive health is absolutely vital. And it's something that we have not done for 30 years, then we need to address. I mean, this pandemic should be a sign to anyone that we need public funding in healthcare, lots of public funding, we need public funding in education and all of this. Uh, if you weren't a socialist before this, this should make you a socialist. But like the public health cuts, like public health, if it's working effectively, you should never see it, right? Like yeah. public health means you don't get sick. And actually that's why I think, I hope that everyone sees the leadership that the public health officials have been offering. Cause I was trying to explain, I, I personally um, have a lot of feelings and thoughts on doctors and their God complex uh, and <laughs> educating doctors and teaching them their role in the, in the medical system that is not patriarchal is something that I am very passionate about. But public health officials are fucking all-stars. They are amazing. They always have been. They're the ones who are handing out free condoms. They're the ones who are making sure you don't get sick at your restaurant. And so that's why I think the response uh, in terms of our healthcare, as much as like I hear stories about LHSC not having masks, like all these things, the actual public health response has been amazing because public health is awesome. And so the fact that Ford still wants to move forward with public health cuts is very concerning. And we should be doubling down on our reinvestment in public health because we would not be in the crisis we are if we had continued to increase it after SARS in, in 2003. So, uh, yeah, public health is my fave. Shore is affiliated with Public Health of Waterloo Region. Big shout out to the, the people working hard at Middlesex Health Unit. Public health is where it's at. And, and we are the ones who do what I would say is true healthcare, i.e. we keep you healthy instead of just addressing crises as they happen. And so let's let's move towards that model. Patient-centered care, community care, wellness for all. Keep people healthy. Stop spending money on wasting when they're sick. Let's let's invest in it up front. So Robin, where can people find you? So I am on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Robin SCH, R-O-B-Y-N-S-C-H. Protrace London is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, we're new on Instagram, so please follow us there. Uh, my wonderful student and friend, Laura Crow, has been doing a lot of work to build that. And I really, really, really want people to, to see the fantastic job she's doing. Um, we have a collective on our Facebook page. So if you're interested in meeting and talking to other people like me, um, we have a group now. So please join us. And then, yeah, I, I guess that's everywhere. I don't know. I'm around. <laughs> 
Awesome. Thank you so very, very much for coming on. This was super informative. Thank you very much for the work that you do. And thank you for being a guest on the Imperial News Podcast. My pleasure, Jody. I hope you have a great rest of your afternoon. If you enjoyed what you've heard so far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we're doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News with a Z. We have an Instagram account, News Imperial. We have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up. You can find the link on our Twitter. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at striatum.bandcamp.com. And special thanks to Robin again for coming on the show for the interview. And thank you for listening. If Trudeau is a millennial for working from home, we're all millennials now in the new pandemic age. This is the dawning of... (laughs) Albumbia, Albumbia, how lovely are your wheat fields.